Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you here. Got a few visitors this morning. Uh, met a couple of you. My name is Braley. I'm a pastoral resident here. I uh, preach a few times. This morning, I'm going to be preaching on Genesis chapter 1. Um, kind of decided to switch things up, take a break in our series in 1 John, and uh, I'm excited about it. But let's pray together, and let's get started. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Amen. Sadly, last week I allowed an old addiction of mine that I thought that I had put to bed. Um, I allowed it to spring back up again. I was exhausted one late afternoon, and I began watching Netflix, and uh, it was a documentary on the 1980s, and much of this Netflix documentary revolved around the president of the ni- well, in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan. And uh, as I was watching this, I just got curious, very, very curious about Ronald Reagan, and so I decided to go to the place built for curious people who are curious about other people and things, Wikipedia. And I got there, and I spent about 15 minutes reading all about Ronald Reagan. And I uh, started reading about his childhood, and then his entertainment career. And then I started reading about his presidency. And as I was reading, I saw a link on that page to the CIA. And since the CIA is so incredibly interesting, I was like, well, I have to click on this. So I clicked on the CIA Wikipedia page, and I read about the CIA for like 15 minutes, and I became a... Uh, not an expert, but I, I learned a lot about the CIA. And as I kept on, kept on reading, I saw a link to the CIA's arch nemesis, the KGB. And so I was like, oh, I have to click on this too. So I clicked on the KGB, and from that, I clicked on another link that was all about the history of assassination mes- methods in the Cold War used by the KGB. By, it, by the time it was all said and done, I had spent over two hours on Wikipedia. My brother, who lives in Birmingham, has this exact same tendency. And at this point, we just refer to Wikipedia as the black hole. Because we know that as soon as we got, get on there, we are just going to spend forever on there because we know that we're going to let our curiosity get the best of us and we're going to come away with nothing but trivial knowledge which I do have that, by the way. If you ever needed somebody for trivia, let me know. I do have trivial knowledge, um, but that's all I have to show for my Wikipedia rabbit trails. This morning, like I said, I have the honor and privilege on preaching on one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, and that is Genesis chapter 1. And this is a passage that, passage that is, in my opinion, one of the most well-known and simultaneously least understood passages in all of Scripture. And in many ways, this passage is a complete nightmare for people like me. Because people, who, people like me who are just so incredibly curious about the world that they want to follow every single rabbit trail, and oftentimes in following every single rabbit trail, we can miss the main point. We can very easily miss the forest for the trees when it comes to Genesis chapter 1. And so, before I read this text this morning, 
Uh, I just want to do a little bit of brush clearing so that we are all on the same page about what the main point of this passage is not. About what the main point of this passage is not. So here we are. Genesis 1 does not exist so that we may speculate on whether or not the words in verse 24 that read, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Let the earth, this passage does not exist so that we may speculate about whether or not those verses do or do not entail some kind of creation by evolution. Also, this passage does not exist so that we may speculate on what God was doing before he created the world or when he created the angels. Also, this passage does not exist, at least primarily, so that we, 2,000, actually like 5,000 years after it was written, can speculate about whether or not Christianity coincides with modern science well, or so we can ask questions about how old the earth is according to the Bible. Now, do not get me wrong, I have, que- I have answer, well, not answers, I, have, oh, I think they're answers, I have opinions about every single one of those things, uh, and I would love to talk to you about them. Um, if you are curious about that, I would love to talk to you after the service. However, I'm not going to be talking about any of those things really this morning because I just don't think that those are the point of the passage at all. I, I know for a fact that the author of Genesis had none of those things in mind when he wrote the passage that we are going to be going over this morning. So, what did he have in mind? talked about what he didn't have in mind. This is what I think he did have in mind. I think he wanted to tell the Israelites this. The God of Israel and the God of Israel alone created the world, and he did, it, and he did so easily, methodically, and virtuously. I'm going to say that again for any note-takers out there. The God of Israel... And the God of Israel alone created the world. And he did so easily, methodically, and virtuously. All right. With all that said, let us finally get into the text. Like I said, uh, the passage this morning is Genesis chapter 1, which, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, that is the very first chapter in the entire Bible. So if you just open up your Bible, there should be one underneath your chair or the one in front of you. Um, and if you kind of go past all the editing stuff in the beginning, that should be the very first page on there. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it, separate it, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. 
and God called the expanse sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind, And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. 
And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Something that I think that we do pretty well at as a church is teaching people how to read their Bibles. By that, I do not mean teaching you what to believe about every single section in Scripture. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, I think that we as a church do a pretty good job of teaching people, here are some strategies and methods you can use to read the Bible well on your own. So, if you have been around here for a while, you probably know that the three most important rules for interpreting any any section of Scripture are these. Number one, you have to read Scripture in its context. Two, you have to read it in its context. And three, you have to read it in its context. Kind of like the, the rules of real estate, you know, it's like location, location, location. Same sort of thing for interpreting the Bible. You do not want to start reading in Matthew and start at Matthew chapter 11 if you have no idea what happened in Matthew chapters 1 through 10, right? You wouldn't do that with a newspaper or anything else. For some reason, oftentimes we do that with the Bible because, because it has numbers in it. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Um, and, and so you wouldn't do that in Genesis. I mean, you wouldn't do that in Matthew. But you also shouldn't do that with Genesis chapter 1. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Braley, I am not a genius or anything, but this is the very first page in my Bible, and it literally begins with the words, in the beginning. You know, there is nothing that happened before this, and you are right if that is you right now. This is the very beginning of the Bible, so nothing came before this. There's no sort of like literary context, right? But something else very important when interpreting the Bible is knowing the historical context of the author when they wrote. The historical context is just as important for interpreting a passage well. And so, really, this raises the question, what kind of world and what kind of worldview was common in the ancient Near East around Israel when this was written? And of specific importance, even more importance to that, as we read through Genesis chapter 1, which is a theological account of creation, is this. What kinds of theologies surrounded Israel at the time when this text was written? Obviously, because of time constraints, and I want to get out of here before lunch, um, we cannot talk about this super far in depth. However... Uh, there are a few things, I think, that are really important for us to know. In a nutshell, the ancient Near East was a region absolutely full of gods. The Babylonians had their gods, and the Egyptians had their gods, and the Canaanites had their gods, and so on, and so on, and so on. 
And the author of Genesis knew this, right? He's not ignorant of this at all. And I think this is so important for us as we work through this. The author of this text, probably Moses, was not only concerned about telling the Israelites about their God and his relation to the world around them. Instead, he was concerned about doing that. He was concerned about doing that, but he was doing that while also de-godding all of the gods, all of them, around Israel at the time of the writing. And if you do not believe me, I think the most obvious example of this in this passage is the sun. Let's take the sun as a case in point. Who is God? Like the big God, like the God that all people are accountable to. Who is the one who made everything? Is it the God of Israel, Yahweh, or is it the Egyptian sun god, Ra? The Egyptians were not the only group of people who worshipped the sun. Uh, They probably are the most famous. But regardless, who should the Israelites trust in? Should they trust in their god or the Israelites or the Egyptian sun god, Ra? The author of Genesis is incredibly clear about who the Israelites should trust in. Yahweh. Why? Verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening And there was morning the fourth day. The Israelites should trust in their God. Why? Because the sun and the moon are not gods. Instead, the sun and moon are simply two amazing features of God's good creation. Notice here also, the author of Genesis doesn't even consider the sun and moon to be mentioned by name. He goes out of his way to not even say the sun and the moon. He just says... God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. There's the big light, and then there's the smaller smaller light. They're not not gods. There's the bigger one that's like really bright, and then there's the other one that's like a lot less bright. They are his creatures, not his colleagues. And I think that understanding this polemic against the other gods really helps us so much in understanding this passage. So, you may have realized, as I was reading through this, but the days of creation can be remarkably confusing to us modern readers. Day one, God creates light and separates light from the darkness. Day two, God creates the sky. Day three, God makes the land appear and he causes plants to grow. Day four, God creates the sun. Hopefully you realized a couple of potential problems there, right? If you are a non-Christian in here this morning, you may be saying to yourself, so Braley, you are telling me there was light before the sun existed. 
Also, you are telling me that plants existed before the sun. I am not an expert on plants, but I think that plants need the sun in order to survive. This Bible book you believe in sure is dumb and full of scientific inaccuracies. <laughs> Conversely, if you are a Christian in here, you might be saying to yourself, Braley, this passage makes complete and total sense. You see, what's happening here is that God was the light the first few days. And so God's face was the source of light the first few days. And so God's face is here, earth is here, and as the earth is rotating the parts of the earth that experience the brightness from God, it's daytime, the other part is nighttime. Also, God's face was a source of vitamin D and photosynthesis for the first few days. There's no problems here at all. I think if the author of Genesis heard a lot of our debates around this passage, really he would just like, shake his head so much and be like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me. I think he would tell us, say, that is not the point of the passage. The point is that God doesn't need the sun. God, doesn't mean, need, God does not need the moon. The gods of the nations are not actually gods. And if you do not believe me, here's some proof. Mornings and evenings can exist without the sun. Plant life can exist without the sun. Also, light can exist without the sun. God is not dependent on any of these for anything. I think this is clearly a polemic against the other, the other so-called gods all the nations around Israel are worshiping. And how can this be true? How can, cause all, how can God call it, cause all of this to be true? Because of this, because the God of Israel and the God of Israel alone created the world and he did so easily, methodically, and virtuously. First, God creates the world easily. How easily? He literally procreates with his speech. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6 and 7, God speaks and the sky is created. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. On the fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon by speaking. God creates via his word. A word that as we saw this morning, in the first chapter of John, comes to be defined as none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may be wondering to yourself, why should I trust in Jesus this morning? This is why. Because Jesus is no mere human being. Now, do not get me wrong. Jesus is a human being, but he is drastically, drastically more than that. According to John, Jesus was the word through which God the Father created all things. As what Wesley read for us this morning, John 1, 3, 
the Word was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. I do not know what you think about Jesus this morning. You may say to yourself and others, you know, I really like that Jesus guy. I even like a lot of what he taught. Too bad he got crucified. He seemed like a real force for good in this world. If that is you this morning and that's kind of your opinion of Jesus, good guy, like a lot of what he said, and that's kind of where it ends, let me begin by saying that I think that every single person in this church would completely agree with you there. I don't think anybody here was like, oh, we hate Jesus' teachings or anything like that. However, if, if that is kind of where your view of Jesus ends, I would definitely argue that your view of Jesus is in many ways accurate, but is nowhere near sufficient. He was an amazing man, but according to both he himself and his apostles after him, he is also the second person of the Trinity. The, the word through which all of creation was spoken into existence, and the one to whom all men and women are accountable. If you do not believe in that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of history, I pray that this morning you will. And that you would marvel at his might and his goodness in his creation. The Trinity, the God of Christianity, is unimaginably powerful. He tells oceans to move, and they move. And he tells the sun and the moon to come into being, and they do so. Let's face it. A lot of us struggle to make a decent casserole for our fellowship meals. Much less can we speak a below-average casserole into existence. Much less anything of greater value than a casserole. We cannot even conceive of creating populations or constellations with our verbiage. And yet this is what our God does. And we should marvel at his creation and praise him for his power. But here's the awesome thing about Christianity. God should not only be praised for his power, he should also be praised for the methodology he used in creating. As we just said, so God is here portrayed as unimaginably powerful. But the God of Christianity is not a bull in a china shop kind of God. It's just all power, no brains, anything like that at all. Instead, God is here painted as this God who creates a world. That He's a meticulous God who creates a world that is meticulous and creates a world that follows his orderly nature. One of my favorite things to do at amusement parks and fairs is walk through fun houses. I don't know if you've ever done this before. I absolutely love fun houses. You know, you'll, you'll walk into a fun house, and it's just, the entire thing is just designed to, like, mess with your senses. You walk in, and you'll see a, a, a wall that looks like it's 50 yards away, and in reality, it's, like, five yards away. And you'll 
they'll have done the floor in such a way that it looks like it's going up, but in reality it's going down. And like one room has completely normal mirrors, and the next room has mirrors. You're like, wait, where in the world am I? And you end up running into the mirror, thinking, like, wait, what's going on here? Everything is chaos in a funhouse. I don't know if you've ever really thought about for more than like two seconds about the fact that our world is really nothing like that. God could have very easily created a world where one day was five hours and the next day was 50 hours. God could have very easily created a world where one day the earth spins one way and the next day it spins the other other way. He could have created a world where one day gravity was, I don't know, the force of gravity was one thing, and the next day, it was something completely else. But he did not. And by the way, this is kind of a side point. Have you ever thought about the fact that science has thrived in Christian countries? Where did the, scienti- where, where did the scientific revolution begin? Christian countries in late Renaissance Europe. Why? Far from being anti-science, Christianity actually provides you with the underpinnings needed for scientific study. What are those underpinnings? Here are a few of them. God created the world in an orderly way. He maintains its orderliness. And human beings, being made in his image, can actually correctly perceive its orderliness. You've got some real problems with, do humans actually, can we understand the reality about the world if you don't have something like Genesis 1. Maybe wondering where am I getting all of this? Let's check out verse 14 again. It reads, And God said, Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. God creates the world so that it follows orderly patterns that can be perceived accurately by us. He creates entities that aid the cosmos in behaving methodically so that gravity stays the same and so that years and days do not really vary in length. And he does all of this for our benefit and for his glory. But notice that the world that God creates here isn't only orderly in its intervals, it's also orderly in its species. God creates an amazingly diverse world with all kinds of everything here. The word kind is repeated in one chapter, in this one chapter, ten times. God creates, you know, he creates these kinds of fish, and he creates these kinds of Insect, he creates these kinds of beasts, these, these kinds of livestock, these kinds of plants, these kinds of trees, and all of this kind of stuff. There is tremendous diversity in God's world here. It's true, it's true today. Still, we live in a world with over 180 different species of trees, over 5,000 species of mammals, 20,000 species of fish, and millions of species of insects. We are still finding... New species of fish all the time. 
It's absolutely crazy. But within that diversity, there is unity and there is classification. If a dog and a dog decide to get get together, they are not going to produce a kitten. True. (laughs) Similarly, if you decide to eat an apple and you decide at the finish, when you are done with that apple, and you say, I'm going to plant said apple trees, apple seeds into the ground, a pumpkin plant is not going to come up out of the ground. Never thought of that before. It's true. Why is this true? God could have created a world where you eat an apple, plant it in the ground, and a dog comes up. You know, it's, Who knows? He could have done that. We're so used to it, we don't even think about it. Why is our world in many ways as orderly as it is? Because our God is orderly. He is a God who delights in logic and delights in systems and his character is shown forth in his creation. And this is something we should praise God for. We should praise him for creating a coherent world that we can live in and come to understand and apprehend in significant ways. Now, at this point, you may be saying to yourself, But Braley, we also live in a world with wildfires and tsunamis and hurricanes. Maybe this world is not actually all that coherent after all. If that is you, just hold that thought for a few minutes and we will get back there. Uh, Because that is a a completely legitimate... God, he's dying over here. (laughs) (laughs) That's a completely legitimate point. We're going to get back there in a minute. think that before we kind of get to that point, one more point that we need to make from this text that I think the text is demanding that we notice is the virtuously part there. Did you notice how many times the word good is repeated in this chapter? Seven times it says that God made something and then he declared it to be good and then at the very end, looking back on the creation as a whole, God says it was all It is all very good. God made this world in an incredibly virtuous manner. There was zero ill will toward his creation. He made a good world that simultaneously glorified him and benefited all of the creatures that existed within it, especially human beings. I wonder what your view of mankind is this morning. What is man? Are humans any more important than dogs or lizards? Or are we basically just the same as them, but just stronger and more intelligent than them? This is a question that our society is incredibly confused on right now. Uh, We live in a world where the death of an animal oftentimes causes more grief than the death of a human being. Now, do not get me wrong. If you have ever seen me around Zach and Diana's dog, you know that I adore animals. Seriously, I I absolutely love animals. I could just, sometimes I think like, why am I in seminary? I just want to retire and, not retire, just start working at like a pet hospital or something like that. Just be the life However, 
even as much as I like animals, the most expensive and rare breed of dog is not worth as much as the stupidest and the poorest whatever human being you have ever met. Because every single human being in the entire world has something that not a single animal in the entire world has. What is that thing? The divine image. Let's look back again to verse 26. And I'm going to read these verses one more time because I think that they are really that important. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you are wondering why verse 27, if you're following along in your Bible, is sectioned off like that, it's because verse 27 is actually Hebrew poetry. It's like God, when he starts creating mankind, just gets so excited that he erupts into like this love song kind of thing. It's like I'm, he, didn't, he didn't have this poetry when he was creating the fish or the animals or anything like that, but when he starts to make humans, he does so in a poetic way. Interestingly, Adam does the same when he names Eve in the next chapter. God made all of creation very good, but only one species is like God in important ways, and that is us. But notice that not only is our structure different than the rest of the animals, our task is also significantly different as well. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. God is clearly the king here in this passage. God is the one who creates everything and he gives commands to people and animals. God is clearly the one in charge here. However, notice what God's command is to Adam and Eve. His command to them is to rule. Now, they are to rule benevolently. Right? I think that a lot of times Christians, it's like, oh, have dominion. That means that we can destroy the earth. Right? We can do whatever we want to. That's not what this passage is saying. They are to rule benevolently. They are to rule in such a way that benefits the earth and benefits the animals in it. But regardless, they are the rulers here. Humanity is presented as essentially royal. Humanity is little versions of God. Designed to rule over creation on his behalf here. I don't know if you came in here this morning with low self-esteem. Hopefully that is not the case. But maybe you came in here this morning, man, like, I am worthless 
for X, Y, and Z reasons. I, I, I have no value. If that is you, uh, I think that you are wrong. Why? Because if you are a human, there are traces of divinity in your frame, which is absolutely amazing. Regardless of what you think of yourself, you have value and worth. Why? Because you are created in the image of God. And that means that in many ways, you are a lot more like the God who spoke the universe into existence than you probably realize. Now, you could take this too far and be like, oh, humans are basically God. That's not what I'm saying. But we are made in God's image. And that is so, so incredibly important. You have value and worth because of that. Conversely, you may be in here this morning saying, man, I am just amazing, but all the other people in the world are garbage. (laughs) Again, hopefully not, but maybe that is you. Maybe you think that Republicans are subhuman. Maybe you think that Democrats are subhuman. Maybe you understandably think that Auburn fans are subhuman. <laughs> Roll Tide. Um, <laughs> we're trying to work that into a sermon for a while now. I finally got it. Okay. Um, that is not true. These verses have massive implications for how seriously you take your fellow man. All people deserve your love and respect because they share in the divine image. Uh, it's, it's, honestly, it's really hard for me to exaggerate how important these verses are to me in my daily life. I am a person, if you talk to Gabby, I get annoyed so easily with other people. Like, I'll just talk to somebody for a few times, and if I just find them to be obnoxious, I'm just like, all right. I'm going to, like, try to find ways so that I don't ever have to interact with these people in my life. Like, it's just, if I see them, I'm going to, like, run the other way. Like, that's how I naturally am. That's how I want to, like, naturally, you know, we're all better at things and worse at things. One of the things that I struggle with is just loving people who are not easy for me to love. This verse, whenever I kind of have that inclination, I always have to think, Braley, do you actually think that so-and-so is made in the divine image, originally created by God to rule the world on his behalf? If so, you need to start treating that person a lot more seriously than you do. Now, again, you may be saying to yourself, Braley, you're talking about how God created a good world and humanity is made in the image of God. Humanity also... It, includes people like Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein. Is God evil, given all of the evil that I see in the world around me? Short answer here is no. Because Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters in the Bible, describe to us God's original goal in creation. A good world ruled on God's behalf by good people. The evil that we see today in the world is not a part of God's blueprint. So, what happened? Short answer, humanity happened. God is not at fault, we are. Instead of being content with our amazing position 
as God's under-rulers, here described in Genesis 1 and also 2, we wanted dethroned. And so our first parents rebelled against God, perverting both their own nature and the world that they were ruling over. If you want to read about this, flip over to Genesis chapter 3, and you will see it all there. Adam and Eve commit treason against God. And hence, they and their children after them forfeit their intended position as God's family. And instead, they become his rightful enemies. The amazing thing about the God of the Bible, though, is that God does not let Adam and Eve ruin everything. God does not say, oh man, like these people messed it all up. I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth and create a better species, and just kind of wind it back, and we're just going to do this all over again. Instead, God says, I'm going to make all of this right. I'm not going to let their rebellion get in the way forever. And I am actually going to make a way for humanity to rule on my behalf as my allies on the earth once again. And this happens through Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And where Adam was disobedient, Jesus completely obeys. And just as, through Adam, death and condemnation come to all people, through Jesus, forgiveness and life come to all who believe in his name and trust that he reconciled them back to God so that they... they, so that they can once again have friendship with him and once again rule God's creation on his behalf. Listen to what the heavenly hosts praise Jesus for in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 says this, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Hey, Braley, why should I be looking forward to heaven? Because it's a lot like Genesis 1, but way better. It's a lot like Genesis 1, but unimaginably better. We will get to reign with Christ on the new heavens and new earth in a world untainted by the sin and death we experience every single day. Christian, look forward to that day. God doesn't just take us back to Genesis 1. Heaven is going to be drastically better than anything described here, as good as this is. Conversely, maybe you're a non-Christian here this morning, and you're saying to yourself, if this is true, this is pretty sweet. (laughs) Hopefully that's you right now. How can I get in on this? Once again, two words, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Believe that where you failed, 
he succeeded, and where all of us have fallen short, he has not. And believe that he did so in your place, and that he has reconciled you to God, with all of the benefits that come along with that. This morning I urge all of us to praise Jesus for reconciling us with our creator, the creator who made the world easily, methodically, and virtuously, and who made all of us in his image. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for just your, your character and the fact that though we are made in your image, you are also in so many ways unlike us. You are so much better and bigger than us. And I pray that every single day as we live in your creation, as we live in your world and enjoy all of the things that you have made, I pray that you would help us to glorify you and praise you for the world you have created. Help us to really just be in all of you, in all of you. Thinking that as, as amazing as this earth is, it cannot possibly compare with its creator. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.